All right, hello, idiots on Parade, the Too Ugly for TV podcast. Bonus podcast, hello, Barrett Antar Goodwin, musician in the epicenter of coronavirus, New York City. <laughs> Indeed. How are you, sir? I am well, because uh, well, Iowa has something like 200 cases. You have 20,000 or something. They say 5% of all corona cases, coronavirus cases are in New York City. Yeah, I'm... I. I don't know much about all that stuff. I mean, I know obviously what what I'm being told, but I I have the distinct feeling that it's going to go from densely populated place to densely populated place to densely populated place to densely populated place. You know what I mean? It's going to trickle out to you guys too, but I think oh, it's it going to it's, it's you know it's going to hit all the major cities and you know just a matter of how well they prepare and how the hospitals are so all right well everyone's I mean, talking yeah. about that so let's talk about something yeah. else because we yeah, have no insights nope, um, none whatsoever so you and i spoke just as friends the other day and you said something really interesting that got my brain working and then i shot it back at you a couple days later and gave you time to digest it and that's where we're going to jump in the thing yeah. you said was this time of isolation is really doing wonders for the online community regarding musicians. Everybody's posting live videos um, or just songs. And what is happening is the musicians community is becoming very collaborative and expanding. Hey, I saw your video. Let me reach out to you. I wanted to reach out to you. Let's talk. Let's jam. Let's, I like what you do. This is what I do. Let's get together and make music. (laughs) I just realized as I said that, an old story. Um, fuck. I don't want to segue already, but I just... will <laughs> Remind me. You got a piece of paper? I don't have a piece of paper. I want to remember I the story don't. of the Frenchman that uh, hit on me in Boston. Because that was his line, if you remember. Like, oh, you go to Berkeley. I, I am a musician. We should hang out and make music together. Do you remember that story? <laughs> I did. All right. I, I got to write that down. so we Because I, I don't want to jump into it too quick. Because we will... Uh, then we'll just we'll be off and running without. I'm walking around now, so this tone is going to change. It'll be an echo, and yeah. oh, of course, I don't have a pen. Um, Alexa, in 20 minutes, remind me to tell the Frenchman story. <laughs> okay, God. I'll remind you in 20 minutes. All right, this will be. I'm turning the volume up so that yeah, it's going to blare. Uh, hopefully, oh, that is I'll hear. So creepy. Blast it. Okay, so that is so creepy. You. <laughs> So that that was what you had said is that the the online community I've seen I've seen way too many horror movies to in in sci-fi movies to have to feel comfortable with that Alexa thing. Maybe I'm just being paranoid, but good lord that thing tells oh, everything's me. being listened to and recorded. I just don't give a fuck. The NSA the <laughs> the I read Snowden's book and it did nothing makes me paranoid like Again, with the virus, it's not a matter of if we're going to get it, it's when. I know people, and I'm not going to talk bad about them, but I know people that are fucking paranoid and are hiding in their basement, and they're like, it's not going to get me, it's going to get you. I, I, everyone's listening to everything. We are being recorded. It, it just all happens, but I don't care. I don't get paranoid. I just accept and move on. So... I'm, I, so you I, might as well, since they're listening, Andy, since they're listening through your phone, what's the point of not having Alexa? Exactly. Right? So exactly. Basically is what you're saying. 
Exactly. I don't know if I agree with that, but I understand it. I mean, the only difference, like, because I don't, we don't say anything wild or crazy. I'm, we're not over here like the instant our doors are closed, dropping N-bombs or, you know, uh, talking about the, the Jewish conspiracies or threatening to actually do harm to the president. I mean, I'll talk bad about Trump all the time, but I've never threatened violence or anything that would get me in trouble or that I'm trying to keep private. I really don't give a fuck. And speaking of fucking, my wife and I are not the most vocal people in the world. We have a very healthy, lovemaking relationship, but nowhere on Alexa are you going to hear, oh man, you got to hear this dude. Come on, everybody gather in the room. They're doing it again. <laughs> so I'm not worried about it. I hear you. <laughs> anyway. I mean, I suppose it's kind of like, right, like if you have nothing to hide, what does it matter if people are listening? You right. Know what I mean? And if I have something yeah. to hide, I can always walk over and hit the mute button. And or go in a different room or just like write a note and pass it and say, hey, I got an idea. Let's not talk about this unless we're, you know, in an old 1976 (laughs) Chevette that isn't, you know, not a smart car. Right. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, I I have something to. Well, I I still haven't told the listeners where we're going with this. I know. So, yeah, dude, just finish your story. Okay. So you you had said that the the being isolated is really interesting to observe when it comes to the collaborative efforts of musicians. And you said that, you know, hey, Nathan, get off your ass and start doing these comedy things. And here's where I'm going with this is I just put out my sixth comedy album. You produced it like you did my fifth and maybe my fourth. I don't remember. I think I know the last one, but either way. Um, And I posted it online on Facebook, uh, as you do. And I wrote a long post that said, I'm really proud of this album. I really wanted to sell it because my last one made it into the top 20 on iTunes. Like, I'm a nobody. And it was, hey, Nathan Timmel's at number... 15 or 16 on the comedy charts and i really wanted to see if i could get high everyone please buy my album let's see how high i can get i want to i'm really proud of this album but instead because everyone's getting fired and everyone's losing gigs and i know a lot of people in the restaurant industry and bartenders and you know comedy clubs i said i'm going to give it away free this was recorded before the coronavirus scare which means for one hour you can sit and not think about all that's going on in the world just you know download it for free sit Listen, laugh, enjoy yourself. And it did really well. Uh, I, you know, a lot of people reposted it. A lot of people sent me private notes thanking me for doing so. Like, more than I expected. I was overwhelmed. Then I talked to you, and you talked about musicians. And it wasn't like a flare went off over me or a light bulb in my head. But I realized, I went, wait a second. And I went back and looked at all the shares. And none... Very few. I'm, I can't think of any right now. I know. I know uh, someone retweeted it, a friend, but comedians did not share it. And what I said was, not only did comedians not share it, but comedian friends of mine, people that I got work, people that I've said, "Hey, come on the road with me. You get paid. You get experience in comedy clubs." Comedians that had never worked a comedy club before, that I took them to their first comedy club and and introduced them to own. People that I don't want to say are indebted to me, but I have gone out of my way to try and show kindness. Just, you know, like, eh, you know, Tim will put out a CD and and nothing. And what I ultimately, and you know, I, I, I fully admitted that it didn't hurt, hurt my feelings, but I did notice like, oh, well, that's kind of a bummer. You know, I'm human. I have emotions. But 
what it made me ultimately realize is what I already sort of said in passing to you is music is collaborative for the most part and comedy is isolating. You get into comedy because it's you and a microphone and your thoughts, whereas music, if you're a bass player, you like rhythms, so you're going to work with a drummer, or if you're a guitar player, you like melodies and you're going to work with a singer. You know, you have the Lennon-McCartney collaborative effect, the, uh, um, uh, who are those, uh, Jagger and uh, Richards, just on and on and on. There are, there are Music is collaborative and comedy is not. And that's where I left it with you is that I don't want to say I don't want to say it's more difficult for me because it's not. But I just left it with the idea that comedy is isolating and music is about collaboration. And I said, let's talk later. What are your thoughts? And this is where I'm going to hand the baton to you. Uh, It's probably got COVID-19 on it, so I'm going to infect you. (laughs) But uh, you're off and running at this point. Go, Barrett, go. Um, You know, I I have a I have a lot of random thoughts, you know. I mean, I guess my first thought is that's really unfortunate because things like Saturday Night Live are highly collaborative and back in the day I thought that show was amazing because of the collaborations. But I is thought, it because I if you've read anything behind the scenes, they all say it's backstabby as a motherfucker. And it's less collaborative than it is like one or two people get together and then elbow everyone else. It's like Kate McKinnon's hot now because she's fantastic. But, you know, like we got to get Kate in our sketch. Fuck those other guys. I mean, it's very backstabby there. But do you feel like that's what it was back in the day? Oh, absolutely. That's what all all the history books on SNL said. But all those guys were all on coke, though, back then. That's true. So (laughs) there was a very different different idea of of camaraderie, I suppose. Maybe it's different today. Maybe it is more collaborative today. But all the way even through the 90s and 2000s. What about, um, what's that show with um, Tina Fey? 30 Rock. Yeah. Right? I thought that was funny. Wasn't that a little collaborative? I don't know. Like, I, I feel like when I see what I think is a collaboration between comics on the outside, I really enjoy what I see. Do you know what I mean? But if it really is just like one person carrying the weight or one person doing it, and it's not really collaborative, it's really a different thing. I can't speak to that. I, I It's unfortunate. Well, I think you there's know what I mean? a different medium between stand-up comedy and the television shows, sketch comedy, improv, things you're talking about, where improv is supposed to right. be collaborative. And I do think it's unfortunate. I think that you could get teams or units to, because generally you have friends. I mean, we've talked about this in Los Angeles. If one guy breaks through, he brings a couple of his friends with, hey, you know, like, I'm going to go on tour. You're my friend. You open for me. I'm the celebrity, but I can at least hang with you. Yeah. 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 I I don't know. I, I think it's unfortunate because I feel like, like, if I think about you and like three of your other friends who are comics, like at this time right now, you guys could be doing commentary on stuff just having improv sessions with each other live do you know what i mean like you could all just be sitting like what we're doing right now you could be doing with two other comics and you guys could be posting it you could go live at eight o'clock and all just share fans with each other just riffing off each other having a good time telling silly stories because you're all cooped in the house together and and share fans and and nobody's stealing fans right comics don't steal fans you would just share them do you know what I mean? Like, I, and so the idea that that cannot happen because of the comedy culture seems really sad to me. 
Well, well it's mean, not like that it can't. Really I don't think that it's can't. I think it doesn't. You just you just gave me another thought, and I think it's drilled into us. Um, maybe it's changing, but I know that. And, and it was the same way in, in Los Angeles. There are a lot of comics, and there's the Comedy Store, the Improv, and the Laugh Factory. And while I was there you were known as one of those comics. Either you hung out at the Comedy Store 24-7 or the Laugh Factory or the Improv, but you didn't really cross paths with the others. It wasn't the Crips and the Bloods, but it was isolating. And across the country, that's absolutely the way it is. There, If there are two comedy... Oh, well, here, let me tell you a story. This was funny. Um, I'm not going to burn any bridges here, so I'll, I'll make shit up, but there's City A, and in City A is Comedy Club A. And you work Comedy Club A because it's booked by a booking agency. Well, Comedy Club B decides, hey, I'm going to go into City uh, A and and be a competition. Well, the booking agency sends out an email that says, hey, we were here first. You know, this this Comedy Club's muscling in on our territory. You can't do both of them. You have to have loyalty. Well, what's funny is, and this is a true story, uh, go to Town B, City B, and there's already a Comedy Club there. Well, booking agency uh, decides to open their own club and sends out an email and says, hey, we know there's already a comedy club there, but we're opening the location. You got to be loyal to us. So if someone muscles in on you, you have to be loyal. But if you muscle in on someone else, you have to be loyal to it. And it's always that way. It's like you can't work both comedy clubs in any one town. And most towns only have one comedy club. And if a second one opens, everyone gets pissed. It's it's. Uh, it's a weird business where there is no collaboration because the audience just isn't that big. A town can have 10 million movie theaters, 5,000 churches, uh, but one comedy club. <laughs> I mean, it's literally just one. They can have 10 blues bars or 10 different music bars, bars that have stages and music, one comedy club. So it's beat into us, the idea that it's, it's every one, you know, yeah. isolating. It's sad. I mean, it's interesting because I'm going to explain this really poorly but I read once, I read somewhere that this is what competition is supposed to do, right? Like, you have a comedy club in City A. You have Comedy Club A. Comedy Club B comes along. All of a sudden, Comedy Club A has to raise its game sum, right? And then Comedy Club B, in order to compete, has to raise its game sum. So what happens is now you have two good comedy clubs in a town. Say a third, fourth, fifth, sixth come in. You have A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? But all of them, only the strongest will survive in a market like that, which means in order for three or four of them to survive, they have to be incredible, which means they have to be bringing in talented people, have good food, good... Like, it just forces everybody to raise their game up a little bit. That's ultimately what capitalism is supposed to do, right? Like, that's what they... That's the idea of that whole free market thing, right? Is the competition is supposed to bring out the best in us. But supposed instead, to. we just decide... Can I interrupt you? Yeah, please. Because, and you and I have talked about this, and it's it's just depressing. Um, there are pretty much two types of comedy clubs. Uh, one are the high end that bring in celebrities or name comics, not not you know Larry the Cable Guy stadium fillers or arena fillers, but you know guys that have, are regulars on television and Comedy Central or they they have a name to them. They have a name, and then mm-hmm. there are the smaller comedy clubs. And a lot of those are unfortunately buddy-buddy. 
as like, you know what, I like hanging out with this guy. And they get into their systems, and it's very difficult to break into that system. And if you go there and you do well, but you don't hang out with the owner or have a beer after the show, or you're just sort of not cool, you don't really go back. So what you're saying is true. It should create a system where a guy looks in the mirror and says, fuck, I've been putting my buddy up every other whatever because I like him, but I need to start getting in fresh blood. I need to start listening to the audience. I need to start listening to the laughter. And if there's only one club in town, you know, he can, they can run that way forever until competition shows up and then it makes him angry. Yeah. I suppose, I mean, it's interesting to me because... I, when I think about jazz clubs in New York City, and I don't know if it's like that now because I haven't been part of the, the jazz musician world in a very long time. And even when I was part of it, it wasn't for a remarkably long period of time, right? But what I noticed is that back in the day, you went to Smalls. Smalls paid no money. It was arguably a shit gig, right? But... Everybody you saw there could play. So you went there to make good music with good musicians. You know what I mean? That's what you did, right? And that's what it was. And then there was another club, the Zinc Bar. You went there. They had all kinds of interesting world music and things like that. And it was always killing. It was never shitty. You know what I mean? Because, you know, yeah, you became friends with everybody and you became part of the system. But the people's friends were all good. Like, they didn't put their bullshit friends up there. Not ever. Not ever. Do you know what I mean? There was a standard, like, and and all the jazz clubs, I don't know, like now, I, you know, I won't name the names of them, but but there's some some famous jazz clubs you go to, and it's kind of, kind of dumb, you know what I mean? It's like, all right, this is just stupid. You guys are just taking my money, charging me, like, $25 for a hamburger and a Coke, you know? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's absurd, right? And the music is so-so, you know? But back in the day, it wasn't like that. Like 10, 15 years ago, I don't remember it being like that at all. And I don't remember it being like that at the comedy clubs either. I mean, I don't know if they were clicky or not. I was just going to say that New York is a different animal. I think New York for comedy, from what I've heard, is is more collaborative. Because you just made me think that when you said New York City, I said, yeah, fuck, I was talking about Los Angeles. But in New York, they talk about hopping from, you know, show to show to show in a single night. And so New York, I think, is its own special animal. I mean, it may be. I mean, because, I mean, yeah, I've I've been to a couple of comedy clubs in New York to see shows, like, just for fun. Like, I would go see something. Some people, hey, let's go see comedy tonight. Somebody, you know, whatever we go. I don't remember ever being disappointed. I remember thinking the food was shit. I remember thinking the service was shit. But I don't remember thinking the comedians were shit. You know what I mean? I just remember the food was awful. The service was awful. Pretty much in almost every comedy club I've ever been in. That the food was disgusting and the service was atrocious. But the comedians never disappointed me. In New York, I've seen comics in like in Jersey and stuff, and that stuff can be a little disappointing sometimes. You know, so maybe New York is like I give New York a lot of shit because, you know, New York like wants to like somehow new being a New Yorker is like some identity. Like people say, I'm a New Yorker, and that's supposed to mean something. You know what I mean? I'm like, yeah, you have a mediocre life in New York. So what does that mean? You know what I mean? Like, you know, amazing people are amazing wherever they are. You know what I mean? The fact that people live in or are from New York, I'm not sure that that means much because I know a lot of mediocre in New York too. 
Do you know what I mean? Well, I know because so, uh, that was Los Angeles's um, quick story. I I should have known better, but I my bubble. I don't want to say got burst, but um, I showed up and I did a show. And I remember everyone talking. There was I, this is very vague because it was so many years ago, and I if I don't remember the story, I don't remember the specifics. But someone was on a national commercial at the time, like I think it was Pepsi. But either way, it was it was they they saw him on stage and said, "That's what we want. That guy's perfect to pitch our product." Um, kind of like the "Can you hear me now?" Verizon guy, you know, something like that. So. I, in my head, went, ooh, he got discovered on stage and got this national commercial. He must be really funny, and he sucked. He just sucked. And I'm like, oh, they were just looking at this as the guy we want. We like his image or the way he presents himself, and we can tell him what to say for our commercial. And where I was going with that was Los Angeles is full of mediocrity. It's full of people that are moving to L.A. to get discovered, and... They say, I'm an actor-comedian-hand model, or I'm an actor-comedian-screenwriter, and they just sort of throw comedian in there. I think New York is more, I'm a comedian, and that's it, period. And that's why New York probably has better product. Hmm. I wonder. I don't know. I mean, I don't know the comedy world, but that would make sense. Well, and also, I think I mean, I've heard a million times where agents and managers said to actors, hey, uh, get on stage and get seen do something to get seen. And so they just say, well, okay, well, I'll just do stand-up comedy. Anybody can do that. And so Los Angeles is flooded <laughs> with a lot of wannabe actors just saying they're comedians. Uh, I can do that. that, that it's, that's hilarious. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> well, it is the most like, disrespected, I don't want to say art form, but art form. I mean, this is the one that, and, and I'm going to shit on people here, and I apologize, but this is the thing that, uh, you know, Skippy from Family Ties or... Screech from Saved by the Bell, as soon as their acting careers were over, they said, oh, I'll be a comedian now. Charlie Sheen did it. He didn't say he's a comedian, but he went on tour. He said, you know, when he was in uh, his fight with Two and a Half Men, he said, I'm going on tour. And I remember reading the stories where the, the theater sold out immediately. Yeah, it's the Charlie Sheen comedy variety tour. And within five minutes, people were booing because on Twitter, he was insane. People were like, yeah, Charlie just says it like he is, like it is. And he would walk out on stage and go, I'm here. And they go, yeah, entertain us. No, I'm here. Okay, do something. Yeah, that two and a half <laughs> men producer sucks, doesn't he? Boo. You're like, it's, everyone thinks it's easy and everyone <laughs> thinks they can do it. And you can. You but, can get on stage. I mean, but but here's, here's the thing, man. You know, somebody said if it's not life-threatening, it's ego-threatening, right? Right? When you when you find yourself being afraid of something, right? If it's not life-threatening, it's probably just ego-threatening. But here's what's ridiculous about that. Charlie Sheen's an actor. He's a professional actor. He's done comedy shows before where he had to memorize lines. Why not just hire somebody who's actually funny to write 45 minutes for him, memorize it, practice it, and go act like a comedian that telling jokes? Why not just do that absolutely. and be insanely hilarious? Like, be absolutely hilarious. Like, kill it. Like, hire three or four writers bring them on the road with you have them do nobody gives a shit nobody expects him to be a comedian but like would like that would have been a real fuck you to two and a half men like watch this i'm gonna go out i'm gonna hire some people i'm gonna employ some people i'm gonna make a shitload of money fuck you guys like why not just do that like what a, like why try to do it on your own oh what's like, funny what is, is the point of that <laughs> you know what i mean it's absurd i don't remember when i had this thought but i remember very clearly having it um, watching 
probably the Oscars, maybe the Golden Globes, and watching actors get up and be the most inarticulate dumb fucks in the world accepting their awards. Now, there are some very uh, classy, clever, and fun people that give speeches, but like you just said, I realized, oh, shit, when they don't have a screenwriter putting words in their mouth, they, they are very good at their craft. That's why they won this Oscar, because they looked at a piece of paper, they listened to a director, and they brought out the emotions they needed to for whatever screenplay they had. But when they were just put up on stage naked, okay, say thank you. They're like, um, yeah, I just really want to thank my manager and my agent and my lawyer and uh, the manager's <laughs> assistant and... Um, Oh, yeah, maybe my, my wife, and um, yeah, this is, just, and, and I'm even being more articulate than some of the speeches I've seen. Like, some people are like, wow, I just, wow, I just, I, uh, I just don't know what to say. This is so overwhelming. Um, uh, my, my manager, my manager, what can I say about my manager? My, man, my manager's been there for me, man. My man, it's like, oh, my fucking good Lord, fuck, have someone write you a fucking speech. <laughs> so what you're saying is true. Charlie Sheen should have had someone write for him, and then yeah. he could have just come up with the beats and like, how will I act this out? That would have been entirely appropriate. And he would have killed it. I mean, again, I don't know the guy. Maybe he did, and it didn't work out. Maybe I hired a bunch of writers, and it, what didn't work. I don't know. Like, I don't know him. I don't want to say that it was just an ego game for him and why he didn't do it, but I, I don't know the behind the scenes of it but to me i that's what i would have done i think if i were in his shoes i don't know man i i, I find this thing to be well that's what you were saying and maybe that's what actors are supposed to do that's their job their job is to be able to take the written word and then express it in a way that makes us believe it that's it yeah that's absolutely job. That doesn't mean that they're smart. It doesn't mean that they're interesting. It doesn't mean any of that stuff. Like, I know, like, I used to believe that, like, if you were a really talented musician, that meant, meant you must have some deeper understanding of all kinds of other stuff. Because when you play this music, it's so captivating and it's so connected and it's so tapped into something so genuine, right? But I've met plenty of musicians who are complete and utter assholes and are not that bright when I may be one of them shit. Right. Like, but you know what I mean? Like, like I've met tons of them who, when I go see them, I'm in awe of what they can do on stage. It is so emotionally connected and the lines are brilliant and whatever it is. And they sing it and the words are whatever. Right. It's, it's genius. And then afterwards you talk to them and they may not be able to add two and two. And it's like, wow, that is fascinating. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's a fascinating thing. I think that it's interesting because I think that we make a lot of assumptions about people. Like if you see like, I don't know if he's really smart or not, but the guy who Ben Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. Yeah. The actor. You know, right, yep. 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 Right. Like I liked him in Sherlock. I assume because of all the roles I've seen him in that he's actually really smart, but he might not be. He might just be a really good actor. Well, he's also got that British accent, which automatically right. like, I, I it's, mean, it's literally, literally right. it, it's a stereotype, right. but you hear someone with a Southern accent, they could be a fucking PhD doctor and you still think they're dumb. You hear someone with a British oh, yeah. accent and you automatically assume they're smart and they could right. be fucking, you know, have the yeah. IQ a level of a turnip. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like, right, there's all these, like, it's funny. Somebody said, well, somebody said that um, when you really examine your culture, you have to look at it the way a Martian would. With, like, taking none of the cultural assumptions for granted. 
Like, you don't take any of them as being factual. You just look at them from a distance and see what you see. Like what you just said. People with a southern accent sound, we feel like they're not smart. Right? And people with a British accent, we feel like they are smart. The funny thing is that I know tons of smart people from down south. Tons of them. But what's interesting is that there's no amount of proof that will convince me that they are that they are as smart as Northerners, even though I know tons of Southerners who are twice as smart as half the Northerners, because of a preconceived belief that is not based on fact, it's based on training, you know, that's what it's essentially based on. And so as a result of that, the proof doesn't seem to matter. Isn't that weird? Oh, it's beyond weird. It's, it's, I, and uh, I'm trying to wrap my head around a way of saying it, um, it's conditioning. In the North, yeah. we are conditioned to believe that the Southern accent means you're dumb. And in the South, they are conditioned to believe that if you're from the North, you are automatically disrespectful and sort of heathenistic, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because if you're from the South, you're obviously a good Christian because you're from the South. But if you're from New York, of all, you know, New York City, Pace Picante. It's it's seen as an atheist, uh, you know, Satanistic wasteland. I mean, have you been there though? Well, yeah, I, mean, I was know. there when it was a Satanistic wasteland. You forget, right. you took me through Forty Second Street when it was still all hooker and strip back joints. When, back when it now was it's 42nd all fucking Street. Disney. Ugh. Dude, I drove through there. My old car had uh, had lights that automatically turned on at nighttime, and there's a setting that you could have. And so I'd be driving through Times Square at midnight, and it'd be so bright that my lights would automatically turn off because I would think it was daytime. <laughs> That's insane, dude. That's how bright it is there. My in wife. The middle of the night. It's so crazy. My wife got a car. She got a Toyota Highlander, and uh, it, it fucking boggles my mind. It has a brights off sensor if it senses lights coming in the distance. So I turned the brights on, and I was driving. <laughs> And a, a car is driving toward me. All of a sudden, my brights just click. I, I go to turn them off, and they were off. And I'm like, what? And then I looked, and they were on. And, and so I st- I, it took me like two cars to realize, oh, they're turning themselves on and off. The instant the car passes, the brights go back on. When it, when it senses light coming in the distance, it just goes. I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ, what will they think of next? I mean... The funny thing is that it's remarkably convenient to not have to turn them off. Like, I think about how annoying it is to have to do that. I do it. You do it. We all do it. But it's funny because it's not actually a big deal. It really isn't. Now that I say out loud that I find it annoying to have to turn on and off my brights when people are coming, we all do it because we understand what a pain in the ass it is. But they solved a minor convenience that will fucking sell that car. You know what I mean? Yep. Do you know what I mean? Like, because it's such an annoying, at least for me, like the idea of having that ridiculous luxury, I'm like, oh my God, that sounds great. Oh, it is? It's fantastic. Because I know that when I'm on a highway, I'm driving at night and... I want to see deer, fox, raccoon. I want to see everything as far away from as possible. Like, I want my yeah. brights on. And so if I'm on a highway, I am constantly like, oh, flick, 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 flick. <laughs> it is the absolute fucking definition of first world problem. Right now, know, so there funny. is some so kid ridiculous. going to bed hungry just starving in a hut and here we are like wouldn't it be great to have a car just like my wife my wife has an awesome car 
Right. And I'm not going to do it because I'm just not, I would not buy the car. Right. I've won. Well, yeah, for a whole host of reasons. But, but like, it's funny that like, it is such an annoying thing that my first thought was, God, that sounds amazing. And it's true. There's actual real problems somewhere. doesn't mean that that's not allowed to be our problem, but it does mean that like in the whole scope of things, what a waste of, of, of something i don't know something's being wasted there (laughs) all right let's segue uh alexa yelled at me about 15 Uh, minutes ago yes um the frenchman story Mm -hmm. so uh you and i met at berkeley college of music in boston massive two tits and uh berkeley as i said college of music not berkeley california berkeley college of music boston and I, we lived in an all-male dormitory. There was the main dormitory, which was co-ed, and then uh, our dormitory was, because the school is what, a three to four to one ratio boys to girls? No, it was eight to one when we were there. It, it was, was absurd. It was, it was, it was something it was, it was like... literally, it was eight or nine to one when we were, it's not like that anymore, but it was, I remember being at least eight to one, and the funny thing is there was another college that I had looked at in Pennsylvania... That was the exact opposite. And you didn't you know? fucking go to that one? What is wrong nah, with you? Because, well, because it was like a conservatory, and I thought that I wanted to be in the Berkeley environment. I mean, I did, but when I, when I transferred to Rutgers, and they had a smaller music program, and I got much more individual attention, I was like, oh, I get why this would have been a smart idea, too. Right. Not, you know not to I mean? insult like Berkeley, kind of but it was more of a factory. Yeah, I mean, I, I like Berkeley now. In retrospect, I could use a place like I could go back there now and do it all over again as an adult, and I could really, I would really take advantage of a lot of what it had to offer. At that age, what I really needed was much more. I needed a smaller program where I got a lot more one-on-one I don't attention. Know. Just, uh, yeah, it's like I any mean, classroom. Yeah, just yeah, like we had we had much more interaction with our teachers. We we hung out with like it was just much more of a tight knit community. Do you know what I mean? And that was just it was just a different environment, you know. But I, I like Berkeley too. In, you yeah, know, I, I like got, it a lot. I have just, nothing bad to say about things. it anymore. Yeah. Didn't like it while I was there, but <laughs> I, I, all that had, that had to do yeah. everything with me and very little to do with the school. So what I find about with right. most of yeah. life is most right. of life is it had everything to do with me. And we've talked about this, Los Angeles. I fucked that up royally. I should have hung out at the Improv. All day, every day, you know, all night, every night. You know, I should have gone there at seven. Made, I didn't. I just got on stage, like, all right, I'm out of here. You know, that was on me. So everything I look back on that I hated at the time, I went, oh, I was the reason I hated it because I was fucking up. Um, it's such a nice thing to do because my son is five years old, and my daughter is seven, and they are in that age where they blame everything on everything else. Um, you know, my daughter was told to clean up a room. I didn't mess it up. Yes, you did. Well, I need help. I, I can't even think of excuses I've gotten, but everything is... Anyway, so we lived in an all-male dorm because there were so many boys. There was one big dorm where they could put all the girls on one floor, and then they needed a small four-story, five-story. We were on the fourth floor, and there was one one floor above us, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Small building. Um, yeah. Of, of just boys. And uh, this is in the 90s, early 90s. So no cell phones. There was a payphone on our floor. No, no dorm room had its indiv- had a no no televisions unless you brought your own. I brought a small fucking black and white TV if you can remember that. Um, 
antennas, no cable, uh, but a payphone on every floor because no phones in the room. Uh, not not because there was a rule, just because they didn't have the phone jacks. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we were at Tower Records when that was a thing, and uh, <laughs> so looking at magazines we couldn't afford to buy when magazines were a thing, and. <laughs> God, much different. So this guy comes up to me, and uh, I, like I said, he was like, "Oh, you are a student at Berkeley." I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "I am a student at Berkeley. Oh, we should we should hang out and make music. I am a musician. We should make music together." And I'm like, "All right, well, no, but uh, whatever." <laughs> and so he asked for my phone number, and I gave him the phone number to the payphone, you know, because that's what you do. And the payphone happened to be on the wall of my room. So if it was ever for me, all they'd have to do, people would just bang on the wall. Boom, boom, boom. Timmel, phone. And I'd yell through the wall, what? Mom. All right, fine. And then I'd go out and take the call. So what started happening was, you know, boom, 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 Timmel, phone. I'm like, who is it? I don't know. Does he have an accent? Yes. I'm like, well, then hang up. And I never <laughs> took his call, ever. And he called for maybe three, four weeks. I don't know. It was just random. He would call me. And so then I started uh, dating a girl. I don't remember her name. Um, and I was in her dorm room. I remember that. And it was late at night. And it was one of those moments where we're hanging out on her bed doing, you know, a kissy face or something like that. And there was a, there was a light noise, a rustle. And we realized it was a flyer being shoved under the door. And so get down, pick up the flyer and start reading it. And she goes, oh my God, oh my God. And what the flyer said was, Again, the verbiage here is just going to be paraphrasing because I can't remember from all that time ago. But the flyer was, warning, this is a serious problem where you're telling all students to be careful. There is a Frenchman, and he was, he was darker complexion, not African-American, which is odd because he's French. Black, not black. I was being politically correct. He wasn't black, but he was, he was sort of a tan hue, uh, uh, caramel maybe. But either way, so there's there's a, a Frenchman who is claiming to be a musician, and he gets your phone number, calls you, says you should jam, record songs, play music together. You go to his house, and he drugs and rapes you. And the reason the girl I was seeing at the time was freaking out, saying, oh my God, oh my God, is her roommate. There were three other girls or two other girls in the room. It was either three or four girls in one room her roommate's boyfriend had that happen to him. And the funny slash sad thing about it is when she told the story, she said, oh, he got out of there before it happened. What happened was he said, ah, would you like some wine? Some wine and cheese is what we French people do <laughs> is we give the wine and cheese. And he roofied the wine. And her story was, yeah, he drank the wine and he started feeling weird. And we woke up, his pants were coming down or his pants were down. So he took off before anything could happen. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, he fell asleep after he drank the wine. He woke up with his pants off, but he got out of there before anything happened. That's that's the way it worked is he drugged him, took his pants off and said, now I'm going to wait a couple hours before I do anything. <laughs> I mean, it's just absurd I mean, that he tried to play that off. That's what I'd want to say, too. I mean, I'm not I'm not faulting the guy. If that ever happened to me, I'd absolutely be saying, oh, nothing happened. I got out of there too soon. But. So I, mean, I wouldn't even, I would, I mean, I don't, I, it's funny because at the time I didn't drink, so it wouldn't even have worked. I mean, we just would have drugged my juice, I suppose. That's absolutely what I would say is if I were to tell the story, because I, I think he told the police, I think the guy, you know, had the wherewithal to, oh shit, if this is happening to me, it's happening to others. 
Because right. I think, weren't you saying you wouldn't tell anyone? Is that where you were going with it? I mean, I would have, I might not, I don't know what I would have done. Neither do I. I don't I, I mean, have no I'd clue. like to believe I would have, I mean, see, the problem is at that time, the fragility of my ego, I would have probably gone back to fight him. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like I, I would have just not because I wanted to, but because who I was at that time would have required me to do that to maintain that identity. Do you know what I mean? Like it would have required that I go back and either take an ass whooping or give an ass whooping, but somebody was going to get their ass whooped. Do you know what I mean? That's what was supposed. To, that was what was going to happen. I, I'm, I don't know if I'd have won the fight, but I'd have sure tried. You know. I don't know what would happen to me yeah, because I never was much of a drinker. I got drunk once in Boston, yeah. uh, the entire time. I know, like Joyce got drunk a bunch, and Chris absolutely liked drinking. Roy liked drinking. Um, yeah. So you know, you're like, oh, oh, you should have some wine. Like, eh, I don't like it. Oh, I mean, it's uh, funny. Some water? Yeah, okay. Oh, sh- this water tastes funny. Or some. I have no idea. Yeah, but I mean, I had, it's funny because, like, I had the same thing happen to me in the train station. I was in one of the, the T stations, and I met some guy, one of my phone numbers, so we could jam, and said, oh, cool, you go to Berkeley. I don't go there, but I'm a musician. We, he, I gave him my phone number, and he called and asked if we could get together. And I was all about it. I was like, yeah, sure, we'll do that. And there's something about the tone of his voice that seemed odd. And then he just started asking me all kinds of ridiculous questions like, like, you know, could he suck my dick and stuff? And I was like, oh, good. Man. <laughs> like, I was like, all right. Well, at least he was a little more right. straightforward about right. it. I mean, his approach and, was and music, but he got that, right into the meat of the, the matter. The thing is that I wasn't even offended, like... I'm not, you know, I've never been homophobic. Like, it, I don't really care. You know, people are free to live their lives, you know what I mean? Like, it's none of my business. And if, it, and if they tell me, that's great. Fine, you know? But, like, I just remember thinking, why would you use music for this? Not that dudes don't use music to get laid all the time with women. But I was like, I get it. Like, I get, I don't get how women feel. But I get why women are offended, female musicians are offended when guys use music to try to have sex with them. Because what had happened to me, I was actually disappointed. Because I actually really wanted to make some music with the cat. Like, I was like, oh, god damn it. I was looking forward to making some music. Well, and see, now you is, gotta go pull this bullshit. You know the what difference I mean? between you and me where you are always social and i'm not so my first response was fuck you and give him the phone number because i know i'm never going to take the call like was your first response is yeah i could hang but you talk about being offended um i've i've only been offended by i think by one gay person one and uh, you know this story um i have no clue who roy was dating at the time uh but he was seeing a girl and he actively, he, he pulled the coat hanger thing. I got back to my, the dorm and he had a coat hanger on the door. I'm like, fuck, he's in there with her. Shit. So it was uh, 11 or 12, midnight, something like that. I'm like, all right, I'm going for a walk. And everyone else is going to bed. And so I just hiked it to the Charles River. And so there, there's street level with bridges that connect uh, um, Boston to Cambridge and then the river is depressed, so you have to go down a stairway to walk along the riverway path. It's not like the river is at street level. You have to go down, you know, steps. And then 
once you're on the river walk, you can only get back up to street level at the next bridge. You know, from, from bridge to bridge, you are trapped, for lack of a better way of putting it. You're just sort of stuck on the river walk. Um, so that's what I do. And I'm walking, just, in, you know, I'm just enjoying myself, and it's compl- there's nobody there. It's just completely isolated. And I see a guy carrying a bike down the next set of stairs. And I just sort of look and I'm like, oh, fuck, you know, we're going to run into each other. He's going to hit the bottom stair just as I'm hitting that bridge. And either he goes one direction and I'm fine or he gets on the bike and I'm fine or he decides to strike up a conversation with me. And then I have to talk to this fucker again, me being an antisocial (laughs) asshole. So he he lands on the uh, right where I do and he starts walking with me, pushing his bike. He's like, hey, I'm like, hello. And I'm like, here we go. So he starts talking, and uh, I, I actively remember this. I remember thinking to myself five minutes into the conversation, I'm such an asshole. This guy is nice. We're having a nice conversation. I don't know why my first thought is, why do I have to fucking talk to people? So I'm thinking that, and we're walking and talking. I'm like, what a nice guy, whatever. And I, there was a lag in conversation. There was a moment where we didn't have anything to say. So I just sort of pointed at his bike and went, just out cruising. And he said, actually, I was cruising you. And uh, I'm like, <laughs> all right. And he said, yeah, I figured out a couple minutes ago that you're not gay. And I'm like, no, not, not that I know of. And he goes, yeah, I just wanted to give you a heads up that uh, uh, on the riverfront here, anytime after midnight, that's a gay pickup spot. So you're, you're kind of in the hot zone. I'm like, well, thanks. That's good to know. And now I'm stuck with him, which is fine. Again, not homophobic, don't care. But the only reason I was offended by him where I'm going with this story is then he started in on the, have you ever tried it? Like, nope. How do you know if you... I'm like, okay. I thought the whole argument was that gay is biological because he's like, maybe you would like it if you've never tried it. Hey, Mikey, it's like cinnamon life. But... And, and like, and I think I even said that to him. I'm like, isn't the whole argument that gay is biological, so you know you can't be attacked for it because it's just the way you are? Why are you telling me to try it if you already figured out I'm straight? And he's like, oh, I don't know. I just want to. And so that was the only time I was annoyed, is because I was trapped with him. And then I just sort of got to the next sterile. I'm like, all right, I'm out of here. He's still a dude trying to get laid. Well, yeah, he is still I mean, a dude you know, trying to get laid. Trying day, everything. I mean, you know, what are you going to do? You know, <laughs> giving it the old college try. Um, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, it, it's... <laughs> yeah, that's some funny shit, man. Yeah. yeah well, we should sign off here because the household is yeah. waking up. My daughter was already down oh, once. That It's going to get edited out. My son will be up and my wife will be up. We, we yeah, You and I yeah. spoke uh, during what's called quiet time. Since we are quarantined, uh, we've scheduled their days for the most part. And even though they are too old for naps, just got to get the fuck away from them. It's like, okay, yeah. you guys go in your room. It's one hour of... Nobody has to look at one another and just you know decompress. Yeah. And is your wife it's... able to? Is she able to work from home? Or oh home? yeah, yeah. Everything she okay. does is so, so, is so she's working. Yeah, right. She's just working from home. Okay. Yep. Yeah. She, uh, in fact, before this all started, she had started working from home one or two days a week just because she likes it. So yeah. That's so either nice. way, uh, cool. I'm I'm such a bad promoter. I said at the top of the hour uh, that I put out a new comedy. It's called This Could Be Awkward. So anybody listening uh, that made it this far, you can look up Nathan Timmel uh, on Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, Google Play. You'll find a bunch of my CDs, much of my comedy albums. Uh, the latest one is called This Could Get Awkward. 
and there you go. So that's it's free everywhere. You can find you can download it for free on SoundCloud, or you can stream it on Spotify, Pandora, all those places. You got anything you want to plug? Katie Henry's album. Um, well, it's already out. High Road. But she's doing live streams every Friday at 5 o'clock. She's going to do a live stream. So people can check that out at Katie Henry Music on Facebook, which could be kind of fun. I'll be doing a couple things, too. I don't know what I'm going to do yet, but I'm going to – I'll be doing some stuff. So once I do, I'll have some stuff to plug. Give me a All week. Right. Cool, yeah. cool, cool. All right. Yeah. AntarGoodwin.com, NathanTimmel.com, and thanks for tuning in. Yeah. Enjoy your isolation. Ha, <laughs>